Dear Father, we pray that this wonderful Good Friday, you open our eyes to the wonder and majesty of the cross and to teach us why it should matter to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why should Good Friday matter to me? Why should the crucifixion of Jesus be something that matters to me? Like someone once said before, Jesus died, so what? So as we approach uh, Easter today being Good Friday, Christians all around the world will remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now I, I believe that uh, as we come here today, it is not a matter of dispute of whether Jesus really died on the cross, or whether it's a matter of dispute that there was a person uh, called Jesus. I don't think these are articles of faith, but these are articles of history, truth, and reality. That there was a person called Jesus, and he did die on the cross. And we know that from the Bible, because the Bible, over and over again, plainly, unequivocally, and undeniably, tells us, that there was a person called Jesus and he died on the cross for us. But even outside the Bible, there are many historical records which record uh, the death and the life of Jesus. So if you look up here on the slide, just if you look up here on the slide, uh, okay, I'm just going to quickly go through these. There was this guy called Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and a governor of Asia in 112 AD. And it's uh, recorded that he wrote, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked from the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And this was found in Annals chapter 15, verse 44. In the Talmud, okay, the next section, which was written by Jewish scribes from 100 AD onwards, it records, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu of Nazareth was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. Lastly, there was this guy called Lucian, and he lived from about 120, he wrote from about 120 to 180, and he was a Greek writer, and he wrote, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced the novel rites and who was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion which are so common among them. Then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers. From the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece, and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. Now, you see, even outside the Bible, uh, here were three people a Roman historian, a Jewish scribe, and a Greek writer. And as you can see from their writings, all of them were very, very anti Christian. From the tone of their language, from their mocking, from their sarcastic uh, way that they refer to things, they were anti Christian. But yet, for them who lived, 
just in the generation after Jesus or during Jesus, uh, the reality of Jesus and the cross was very real. Uh, so I think that as we come here today, even in, in the 21st century, uh, I had this book called Testament, and it's written by this guy called John Romer, and I think it was written for the ABC in Australia and BBC in England, and he's not a Christian. But even he, as a respected historian, says, uh, yet this man Jesus lived, of that there can be little doubt. Uh, consider the life of Alexander the Great. As with Jesus, there are a number of legendary biographies about his career written after he died, but we are convinced that he lived. His effect upon the world was so tremendous. Hellenistic towns and temples that he founded were scattered from Egypt to India, and the, the kingdoms of his generals changed the ancient world forever. It is by the effect of the man, ultimately, that you see that Alexander lived. And according to such a widely accepted standard of historical probability, Jesus too must once have lived. Unlike Alexander, of course, Jesus was a humble man. There are no coins with his face upon them, no contemporary inscriptions telling of his passing, and neither should we expect there to be any. No names of any of the villages of Capernaum were found in the excavation there. Such humble people rarely leave records of their passing. It is unreasonable to expect to find contemporary records of Jesus or Peter in such a place. Yet from a village by this lake, and from the words of the gospel, came such an energy, such an effect, that unless the whole movement was a confidence trick of unparalleled dimensions, it is more reasonable to assume that a man named Jesus still really lived in Palestine during the Roman government. So we're not here today, as we celebrate Good Friday, to prove that Jesus lived or that Jesus died. Because I think these are facts of history and truth and reality that Jesus lived and Jesus died. But what we're here to see today is why Jesus died and why Jesus lived. What was the, the reality in which he came to? Why did he come to die? Now, I know that uh, last week, many people, including myself, uh, were transfixed watching about uh, Lee Kuan Yew's life and uh, watching television and reading many newspaper articles about uh, what he said and did. I remember one thing that struck me was, uh, I think uh, either during the funeral or in one of the Channel News Asia uh, presentation. Someone said that one of his co former cabinet ministers, cabinet ministers, said that Lee Kuan Yew had what he called uh, the helicopter view. That means he he lifted himself above the details to be able to see the real issues. Uh, Margaret Thatcher said that Lee Kuan Yew had the unique ability to identify the issues through the fog of propaganda. And I think that that's what we're trying to do today to to go beyond the details of his death because we all know Jesus died, and to ask ourselves. Why did he die? What was the purpose of his death? And in order to do that, we want to look at the last day of Jesus Christ. The last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Now when you think of a day, and the start of a day, when does the day start for you? When does the day start for you? When does the new day begin? Usually it's the first second after midnight, right? That is the new day. But that's actually a very recent phenomenon. It was only in the 17th century that clocks became more reliable and people started thinking of days as starting after midnight. But in the ancient world, as with the Jews, the day didn't start at uh, one second after midnight, but it started at sundown. For the Jews, the day started when the sun set. And on that day, the first day, that this one day that we are looking at here in just Jesus' life that he died, we look at Thursday night. Last night, that was the day that started for Jesus. And when the sun went down, it was probably at 7 o'clock. 
And this was a very, very important night or very important day for the Jews during that time. It was the Passover. And the Passover was the most important dinner, so to speak, of the whole Jewish year. You know, for us, as a, I guess if you're a Chinese, the most important dinner that you really cannot afford the whole year, you can, you can, can afford to miss many dinners throughout the year. But, but what is one dinner that you cannot afford to miss during Chinese New Year? Probably your Chinese New Year reunion dinner, right? I mean, if you miss that, that would be terrible, right? But here, for the Jews, it was the Passover meal, which was the meal which they could never miss. This was the meal in which all of them had to participate in. And the reason was because the Passover meal remembered what God did to bring His people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Now, God had obviously done 10 great miracles. He had brought 10 plagues on Egypt in order to force Pharaoh to let his people go. But the last plague was significantly different from all the other plagues. In fact, if you look in the book of Exodus chapter 11, when the God says to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt, that word, the, the Hebrew word for plague there was different from all the other nine. The Hebrew word for plague that uh, God used was the Hebrew word nagar, which means a death blow or stroke. And that, what, that was what God did in that last plague. He brought death to the firstborn of all of Egypt, the firstborn of their families, their children, the firstborn of their cattle, the firstborn of their livestock, all of Egypt's firstborn were killed. But on that day, God spared the Jewish families and their livestock and their cattle. He passed over their families in judgment. And how he did that, the the process by which that happened was, Israel was called each family to sacrifice a lamb. A Passover lamb in which they were to take the blood and spread it on the doors and the sides and the tops of their doors. And when God's angels saw the blood, it would pass over that household. So once a year, every Jewish household was to remember the Passover by eating the Passover lamb. Even today, if you look up here on the slide, right? Oh, sorry, yep. Oh, okay, next one. Uh, the Jewish families would meet and they would celebrate the Passover and remember uh, what God did all those thousands of years ago to pass over the, uh, the, the Jewish households. Now, what happens during the Passover, even today and then, was that the head of the house, or the most senior person, would take the, 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 uh, the head of the table, as you can see here, the guys with the hats, all right, or the older people generally, the elder, and, and, and his responsibility would be to explain to, the, to all the people sitting there the, the purpose and the meaning of the Passover. And in the ancient days, uh, even today, if you go to the, you Google it, there's a very strict way of celebrating the Passover. You know, you can't just like get all your stuff together and just do what you feel like doing. All right, next slide. There would be four cups of wine. Okay, uh, they would sing songs or praise God first and then they'd drink a wine. Then the food would be brought in and then the head of the household would explain what God had done. They would sing praises to God again. Then they would sit, drink the second cup of wine. Then they would eat the bread and the bitter herbs and the stewed fruit. They eat the Passover lamb. They drink the third cup of wine, then they sing praises to God again, then they drink the fourth cup of wine. But here, as we look, if you look at um, the back of your outline, I printed out for you the, the Bible passages. 
if you look here at Mark chapter 14, for the first time in the thousands and thousands and of, you know, millions of families doing this over and over again, in Mark chapter 14, verse 16, as we read in the responsive reading, for the first time, Jesus did something very different. Between the, the second and the third cup of wine, right? Oh, sorry, between the second and third cup of wine, correct? Jesus, while they were eating, took the bread and instead of praising God and remembering the Passover, what does he do? He takes the bread, he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take it, this is my body. And then, he takes the third cup of wine and he gave thanks and he offered it to them and they all drank it. And then he says to them, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. I tell you again, I will not drink again the fruit of the wine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, this is really remarkable, right? Because first of all, Jesus breaks the, the protocol and the program for years and years and years of centuries. But what he says is even more significant because he reinterprets the Passover meal to apply it to himself. He says, eat this bread. This is not the Passover meal we're remembering. This is my body I'm giving to you. Drink this cup of wine. This cup of wine represents the blood that I pour out for you. Jesus was saying that his death was actually like the Passover lamb. He was the Passover lamb. He was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And that's why when he talks about his blood being poured out for them, it's such a vivid imagery. You see, blood always symbolizes life given over to violent death. When the Passover lamb was killed, it meant that his life was violently taken and his blood was shed. But Jesus here says that his blood will be given for them. And if you notice what it says there very carefully, he says, my blood which is poured out for many. Now obviously, I can't visually do that and get a big, I mean, I could throw my cup of water at you. But think of the pouring out of, of, of blood. Right? It's not a drip. It is not a small flow. It is his blood being poured out for many people. And this was a great difference because the Passover lamb was only for that particular family. Each family had to kill its own lamb. But Jesus was saying that his blood would be poured out for many, many people. It was abundant, this Passover sacrifice that he was going to do. So Jesus died. So what? No, that cannot be right, right? Jesus died so that he would allow God's judgment to pass over us. Now, for some of the younger people here, uh, I, I like to watch The Walking Dead, right? I don't know whether you feel it's very unchristian of me to watch The Walking Dead, but somehow I like walking, to watch The Walking Dead, I must confess. So anyway, the last episode, right, I watched The Walking Dead, and there was this guy called Morgan, right, Morgan, so he's this other character, and he saves these people, and they ask him, why do you, why do you save us? You know, why, why did you save us for, why did you risk your life to save us? And he says, because all life is precious. And I was thinking to myself, well, indeed, all life is precious. Our lives were so precious that Jesus died as a Passover lamb so that God's judgment will pass over us and give us life. How precious is our life? It is so precious that Jesus chose to die for us. 
The Passover meal generally lasts from about sundown to about 10 o'clock. Right, that's how long the Passover meal lasts for. And after the Passover meal, if you look at this map, right, uh, Jesus made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, for those of you who've been to Israel, is a part of the Mount of Olives which overlooks the temple. Right, it's a, it's a bit like a Bukit Timah Hill or something. I don't know. But anyway, so you know, they walk out of the city and they go to the, the, the Mount of Olives. And there, he goes to pray. Now, if you look here again in the outline, what does Jesus pray about? Right? What, does he, what does he pray in this night after he said that he's going to give his life over for people? Well, he, he says there in verse 33, isn't it? He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, it says there. Now, if you, if you look at this passage, uh, you'll see that Jesus, uh, rightly so, knowing that he's going to die, experiences what you and I would feel. A deep distress, uh, anguish, uh, sorrow. But notice what he says. He says to God, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, what does that mean, uh, take this cup from me? Is he just saying, change the future for me? Uh, change my fate? Is he just being like very poetic, you know, like, you know, change the, the reality of what I'm going to do in the future? No, that's not what the cup means, right? For, for the ancient world, especially for the Jews, the cup in many ways represented the cup of God's wrath. It, it was a vivid picture of, of drinking uh, your death or, or judgment. So if you see here in uh, Isaiah chapter 51, uh, it says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Israel, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says. Your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. And from that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. See, what Jesus was saying was when he would die he would actually at the same time be drinking the cup of God's wrath and punishment. But how can that be, you see? Because Jesus, as we know, was sinless and he was perfectly righteous and he was godly. How could he drink God's cup of God's wrath when he wasn't guilty? But it was because he saw that on the cross, just as we saw on the Passover lamb, he would be a substitute and he would take on board in his own body, in his flesh, on the cross, the punishment of us all. See, I want you to think of it in a very vivid way. Uh, I, I know that some of us, we, we find it hard to, 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 I guess, expand our minds and use imagination. But I remember reading this book about how it can be very helpful in terms of understanding what the Bible is saying. Imagine in front of you right now is a cup. Okay, There's a cup, right? But in that cup, uh, there's poison in it. Okay? 
Imagine it's just like the A-star person in America, okay? Like you've got poison. You've got poison in front of you, okay, in this cup. But it's not just poison, but it is the cup of God's wrath in front of you. It is it is the is the is the drinking of this cup will bring everlasting judgment and condemnation and wrath upon you. And this cup is in your hands, it's got your name on it, and you have to drink it. But instead of you drinking it, Jesus reaches over and takes that cup from you and he drinks it for you. See, that is the meaning and the and, and the purpose of why Jesus went to the cross. Because he was taking your cup, the cup with your name on it, the cup which which you deserved of God's wrath and judgment and condemnation for your sins. And he reached over and he drank it for you. That is what is meant by the by what Jesus did on the cross. That he took your cup of God's wrath and drank it for you. That's what he did for you. He didn't just die physically, but he actually took your punishment for you. We're going to fast forward now to the last few hours of uh, Jesus' day. And we move from Thursday night to Friday afternoon. Okay, So just a few hours before the day ends. And Jesus is on the cross. In fact, it says that in verse 33, if you look at the last uh, part of the outline, it says that at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, Now, now the way that... Uh, uh, the ancient Jews uh, calculated time was from the first hour starts when uh, the the day starts. Okay, so so you know it's like and then the, the sunrise uh, sunrise. So so the sixth hour is uh, twelve o'clock because you know f- for them the sunrise at six. Then if you do your math, six hours later is is, is noon. Uh, so at noon, uh, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which was at uh, three o'clock. And at 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamak saktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. For a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, why are we told here that at noon to three o'clock, darkness came across uh, the whole land? Uh, Why is it recorded for us? Why is it necessary? Is it like a a weather report? You know, it's going to be thundery showers that day. No, it doesn't say that it was thundery showers, right? It said it it was darkness. Now, darkness is a very unusual thing. I mean, obviously, uh, it's very hot in Singapore at noon, right? Uh, it's been getting hotter. But imagine in the Middle East at noon, how hot it should be and how bright the sun should be. It's very unusual that it should be so dark for so long. Now, we're not here to try to find out, like, you know, what is the, uh, you know, is there some eclipse happening or what? But it's to tell us that something supernatural and cosmic is happening. Uh, you see, darkness in the in in the biblical sense was a picture of God's judgment. Uh, it meant that there was a supernatural sign from God that His judgment was coming. In fact, again, if we look back to the events of Egypt, uh, one of the plagues that God brought was darkness. When Moses stretched out his hands towards the sky, God caused total darkness to cover all Egypt. 
for three days. In fact, the book of Amos, uh, chapter 8, tells us that in the day of judgment, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So for people with ears to hear and eyes to understand, darkness during this time was not rain. Okay, So for some of you, if you ever see like... Uh, uh, you know, some movies or something, it's just, it's just really rainy or something when Jesus died. No, it's not rain. It is, it is supernatural darkness. It's a darkness which symbolizes God's judgment. And that's why in verse 34, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually reflecting that dark judgment which comes upon him. You see, God was revolted at that moment by the sin in Jesus. And that's why Jesus uses the word forsaken. Forsaken is the word of a broken relationship. You are forsaken when someone finds something in you uh, offensive. You're forsaken. You're forsaken when people don't want to have a relationship with you anymore. And at that moment in time, just before Jesus died, he was forsaken by his father, God, because God was revolted by the sin and the wickedness and evil in Jesus. It wasn't his sin, it wasn't his wickedness, it was our sin, our wickedness, but it was now born upon the body of Jesus Christ. And that's why, and the very last thing that happens on that day for Jesus, with a loud cry when he breathed, the curtain of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, these three things all come together, the judgment of darkness, the cry of forsakenness, and the tearing of the temple. Uh, the curtain, sorry, not the temple, the curtain, right? Now, the curtain, if you look up here, this was the temple uh, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, there was the outer curtain, and there was the inner curtain. And it separated the outer court from the inner court. And the inner court was a very, very special, sacred, sacred place. Okay, now... If you were a tourist in those days, you could not gain entry into any part of the temple. But even the Jews could not get entry into the inner court. right? Because it was so sacred and it represented in a very real way the presence of God among the nation. Within that, enter- that, that, uh, that court right, was uh, the Holy of Holies. And only once a year could the high priest enter into the inner room and, and actually come out without dying. And that for that one time of the year when he went in, he had to be like, go through a whole day's worth of washing and purification and blood and everything else in order to enter into the presence of God. See, what the curtain represented was a big sign saying, you are not welcome here. You cannot enter here. This is not, there's no place for you here. I remember um, when I was much younger, I used to visit a, a friend's house. And in this friend's house, there was this special room. And in this room was like this antique dining table with crystal and silverware and everything else, right? And as children, we were never allowed to enter in this room because obviously, you know, we would destroy things and things like that, right? So this room was like like a sacred room. You could never enter so the meaning was very clear to us. You are not welcome here. You cannot come in. And the same way this curtain represented to all Israel that you are not welcome into the presence of God. You cannot come into the presence of God because 
God is revolted by our sin. God hates our sin. He cannot stand our sin because He is perfectly holy. But when Jesus died, what happened? Okay, next slide. Okay, next one. The curtain was torn, right? Or ripped or shredded from top to bottom. Now this curtain is not like your shower curtain, right? Okay? Uh, it is not like your, your, your curtain uh, at, 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 you know, at home. Is, even if, uh, okay, I, I did try once to rip a shower curtain. Obviously, I'm not very strong because I had a lot of trouble doing it. But, but, but this was a thick, thick curtain. It's like a wall, okay? But when Jesus died, it was ripped. And not from bottom to top, right? If a man ripped the curtain, it would be ripped from bottom to top. But it was ripped from top to bottom. And what that symbolized was that the death of Jesus was effective. When he died, he took the sins of people. He drank the cup of their wrath. He was their Passover lamb and he allowed the separation between man and God to be torn apart so that mankind could go into the presence of God. They could enter into the presence of God without fear anymore because their sin had been passed on to the substitute, the Passover lamb. So as we come and reflect on Good Friday, truly we should be filled with great joy, great thankfulness and gratitude uh, for the death of Jesus. Uh, the death of Jesus is not meaningless to us. It is not just a historical oddity. It's not just something you know, that's uh, interesting to listen to one day of the year, but it has permanent and eternal consequences for us all. Again, I think it was right that... Uh, Last week, um, you know, there was a great sense of gratitude and uh, appreciation uh, for what Lee Kuan Yew had done for us. And, and it was shown in, uh, in so many things that people did. And I think uh, it's undeniable that he's done much good. I mean, I've read most of his books. I've read many of his speeches. And you could say truly that uh, because of what he did, it made a huge impact to us. You could never say, Lee Kuan Yew died, so what? Because... He did things which actually impact on, on, on us today, what, what happens today, our present life, our present world. His life and death meant something. And the same way, as an analogy, you could never say the same thing about Jesus. Jesus died, so what? Because what Jesus did when he died, especially when he died, has a lasting, eternal reality for us. When he died, he brought us from being enemies of God, destined for destruction and condemnation, wrath, to being brought into a, a real living relationship with God, to eternal life. And he didn't just do it for the confines of his period, his world, right? but for all worlds, and for all people, and from the people who lived before, and the people who live today, and the people who live beyond us. See, Jesus was the Passover lamb. Through him, God's judgment will pass over you. He did take the cup of God's wrath for you. And he tore open the dividing curtain between you and God to reconcile you back to God. So this Good Friday, if you do not recognize 
the death of Jesus, I would like to invite you to see that the death of Jesus is real. And even more, if you do not understand the significance of the death of Jesus for you, again, I'd like to invite you to reflect on what Jesus has said that he's done for you. And for you who recognize and and understand what Jesus has done for you, then my invitation to you is to renew your faith and to really give thanks and to see and to understand just how significant, profoundly significant it was that Jesus died for you and what a difference it makes for you, not just today, but for eternity. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you that You sent Jesus to die on the cross. Indeed, help us to to see the relevant issue at hand, to go through the fog of propaganda, to see the real meaning of why Jesus died for, of what Jesus died for on the cross. That he died for people, people like, like us, sinful people, people who do not live up to your standards. Indeed, we don't ever live up to our own standards many times. People destined for judgment, people destined for condemnation in your wrath. We thank you for your son Jesus because on that day, 2,000 years ago, he died as our Passover lamb. So that because of his blood poured out for us, his life given in, a, in, in violent death, your judgment will pass over us. We thank you that on the cross, he drank the cup of your wrath destined for us. That on the, on the cross, because he bore our sins, darkness came and he was forsaken by you. Dear Father, we thank you that the dividing wall between you and ourselves is taken down. That we are now welcome into your presence and given the assurance of full relationship and of eternal life with you for eternity. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.